All right, guys. Uh, if you have your Bible, find John chapter 16. We're getting closer with our passage this morning to the end of the words of Jesus to his disciples, commonly referred to as the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus shared the Last Supper with them, delivered these last words to them before, in the next chapter, praying for them and and us. Um, And it would be right after, so this spans four or five chapters, but it's all happening on a single night. It would be right after this prayer that we're going to think about next week, on this very same night that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas, who had already left the supper. And on the, on the next, that would happen overnight. And on the next day, after, say, after these words, Jesus would be tried and beaten and flogged mercilessly, crucified unjustly. So here we are, very nearly approaching that climactic event. Um, and uh, just some, in, in, in prelude to what we're going to study today, uh, just, a, just a reminder and, and hopefully helpful to you when you're reading your own Bible, when you're when you're reading and studying the Bible for yourself, it's always good to keep in mind what you've already read. That may sound intuitive, but it's easy to forget and practice. But to, to always remember what you've already read, it can inform what you're, what you're presently studying. We've already seen that a number of times throughout John. We've seen it a number of times, even in this upper room discourse, um, as we, if you've been here, you know, we kind of, we've fairly routinely called to mind Jesus' words to Peter that on this very night you will betray me and his sort of impending failure. And, and keeping that, that in mind, that reality, what Jesus said that Peter would, would do that this very night, keeping that in mind from when he told him to the things that are said afterwards, um, it has given us, I think, insight into some things that Jesus has said that may not it'd be easy to take out of context or misinterpret. Uh, it's, it's been helpful in some of the things that Jesus said, like particularly in chapter 15, to recall the difference between um, Judas and his betrayal and Peter and his impending stumble. That's a helpful distinction that you, that you get when you keep in mind whatever passage you're on, what have I already seen? What have I already read? On the other hand, and in addition to that, it's also good to have an idea of what's coming up and look ahead. Uh, what's coming up after this passage that I'm studying? And you, you should, anytime you're studying the Scriptures for yourself, you should make, a, make it a point to glance ahead at least at what's coming up later, especially in the Gospels. Um, or better yet, go ahead and read it, and then come back to the passage you're studying. Uh, because the biblical authors, the, the guys writing this, I mean, they knew what was coming up. I mean, they're writing it. They knew what was, that, what was coming up, and so they often peppered in sort of intentions all along the way, little statements here and there, or they included something. They didn't say, all, they didn't communicate all that Jesus said, but they, in, they made sure that you, you knew that he said this. And, and, and it, it's, it has more significance to it if you know something that's coming later. Um, and, and, and we have an example of that in our passage. The reason I'm saying all this, we have an example of that in our passage today. For example, 
here you are just a few literal hours away from Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his agonizing death, uh, over which just a moments away from his sweating drops of blood in prayer over. And not only that, but if you, if you read ahead uh, just a little bit beyond that, you know that, that he didn't stay in that state, that he rose eternally from the grave. You know all that's coming up. That's the high point of the Gospel of John. You know that's where you're headed. And if you have that in mind, uh, that that's coming up, and, and, and you know that that is sort of the, the atmosphere that's casting, a, casting a, a, a shadow, a good shadow, over all this that you have leading up to it. That's the atmosphere at which you're, in which you're reading all that's coming up to it. It adds tremendous significance to things that you, that you come across. For example, the, the last words from Jesus in this chapter, where he says famously, probably one of the most well-known verses in the Gospel of John, I've said these things to you, verse 33, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That, that is... Even if you didn't know what was coming later, just saying something like that, it sounds important. I mean, you, he, he means something very important by that. I have overcome the world, but you might not know precisely what he means. In fact, if you were one of the disciples sitting there that day to, to whom he first said it, you didn't quite know everything that was coming up, and you're like, I know that's important. I just don't know exactly what he means. But we're not on that vantage point. We're on the other side of things. And so I think it's, a, it's always an encouragement to know what's coming up later so that when you come across these things before it even gets here, you see the significance of what he's saying and how exactly he's going to overcome the world. All right, well, keep those things in mind, always looking back, always looking ahead. Uh, it will add a richness to whatever passage you're studying. So there's your little tidbit for Bible study today. Um, again, let's read our passage for today, though. We're in uh, John 16. We'll begin in verse 16 and read through the end of the chapter, verse 33. So if you found that place in your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read aloud. Beginning in verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he saved them the trouble and said, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born in the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but... I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, 
he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I come from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figures of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We ask your help as we come to it this morning. Would you please give us eyes to see the truth in this passage, in the words of Jesus. Help us to see what you would have us to see. Give us minds to understand what Jesus tells us here. Would you give us not just eyes to see and minds to understand, would you please give us hearts to rejoice in and hearts to embrace and hearts to love and care about and see as important and as most important what Jesus says here. Would you give us wills correct our wayward wills. Please give us wills to obey what it is that Jesus encourages us and calls us to obey here. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you were here last week and you remember the general theme of of last week's passage, you might recognize that um, the two weeks are very similar, what we read last week and studied and what we just read just now. They are very much alike thematically. Uh, So, for example, last week's passage began in chapter 15, verse 18, saying, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And he went on to tell them in in that passage that the kind of treatment that they should expect from the world as his followers, as his, as his witnesses, they shouldn't expect to be treated any better than Jesus himself was treated in this same world. And that theme, in large part, continues into the passage we just read for today. We, we, we just read that, especially in that climactic um, verse of the passage, verse 33, where uh, his final words before he prays for them, in this world you will have tribulation. But... Hopefully you noticed that at the same time in these final words, Jesus intends not just to sober them up about the tribulation coming, but to encourage them um, as his final words to them before he goes to the cross. And we really, um, what came to my mind is, is we get to the very end of Jesus' words here. And I think even at this point, we're seeing we're seeing 
on display uh, the, the truth that sort of kicked this whole upper room discourse off. Do you remember how it all began in, in chapter 13, verse 1, where we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And I think the, the, the encouragement that he gives to his disciples here in these final words is Jesus still doing that. He's loving his own to the end his, in his final words. And in particular, Jesus gives them, as I see it, three, three encouragements in these final words. If you're taking notes, here's what I would want us to see in this passage. As Jesus prepares them for the tribulation that they will face and that we will face as we follow him, he first reminds them, as the first encouragement, the joy set before us. The joy set before us. I see that in verses 16 through 22. Obviously, that's a phrase... I borrowed from Hebrews chapter 12, referring to Jesus before the cross. But it's a good way also of phrasing what is true also of us as his followers um, in light of what he tells us in these verses. So the joy set before us is the first encouragement. The secondly, Jesus reminds them and us of the fellowship available to us. The fellowship available to us. That's verses 23 through 28 the fellowship available to us, especially in the words that he gives to them about prayer. Okay? So those are very encouraging verses. And then finally, in the end, verses 29 to 33, he assures them of the victory upholding us. The victory upholding us. As he's already done in this discourse, in those three points, he, he gives them something true about the future, something true about the, the, the present and an assurance that all of that is a certainty because of something true about the past. Something true about the future, the present, and the past. And so knowing that's what we're going to find here, let's dive into the text and see it for ourselves. And let's start at the beginning and see how Jesus reminds them and us of the joy set before us. So looking at verse 16, Jesus begins what he says to them here, and I'll admit a little cryptically. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Now, I mean, if we're, if we're familiar with the Bible, for us sitting here on, on this end of things, it's not impossible by any stretch to figure out, even as cryptically as that's stated, it's not hard for us to figure out what he's talking about. Um, I mean, it may be sort of a, an unexpected way of saying it, but we get what he's saying. But we're in a position now that his disciples were certainly not in um, when they sat there with Jesus. And you can tell by the verses that follow in, that they didn't have any idea what he was talking about. They didn't have any idea. In verse 17, the disciples were basically saying, what in the world? You know, what, what is this that he says to us? And in verse 18, they're, like, they're trying to figure out, what does he mean by a little while? What in the world is he talking about? Uh, and in verse 19, Jesus sort of saved them some trouble and speculation, um, but not much. I love how John routinely gives us insight into what Jesus was thinking, and usually it involves uh, Jesus patiently enduring what he knows the disciples don't know, and they're trying to figure out, and so everybody's too scared to ask him what they want to ask, and 
he just waits there while they're debating among themselves until he finally is like, this is dumb. And he clears it all up for them or whatever. And so he jumps in in verse 19 and says, is this what you're asking? <laughs> uh, you're talking around me. You're not talking to me. Is this what you're asking? Uh, are you, aren't you asking about what I mean by a little while and you will see, won't see me? In a little while and you will see me? And they're like, yeah, would you clear that up? In verse 20, he starts explaining. And, and, and from our vantage point, it seems pretty clear that he tells them, again, he tells them something, even in his explanation, he tells them something that they really probably won't fully get until it happens to them. There's a lot of things that are like that in our lives. You, you in your younger years, you're told a lot of things. You grow up in a, in a good church. You're taught a lot of truth, and it's true. It's just when you get older and you finally go through some stuff, you really find it true in your own soul. That is true, what I heard all those years. And you know it in a way that you didn't know it before you didn't go through anything. And so he's telling them this, and it's true what he says in verse 20, that they just don't, they just don't yet know fully because they haven't experienced it, what he's talking about. He says, for a little while, they're going to have sorrow. But that won't be the end. Uh, in the end, your sorrow is going to turn to joy. For, for a while, he says, you're going to weep and you're going to lament. And even while you're weeping and lamenting, the world around you is going to be rejoicing. But the day is going to come, he's basically saying in, a few, in fewer words, the day is going to come when those roles are going to be reversed. And your sorrow is going to turn to joy. Again, us having the end of the story in mind already. right? We have that, that vantage point. Us having the end of the story in mind, can kind of, we can kind of intuitively get what he's saying here. But try to think about it from their vantage point. They still don't know how everything is going to play out with Jesus. They honestly don't get where, where he's going. They, they, they didn't just want to know, what, is he, what do you mean by a little while? It's not just that. They're like, what do you mean by I'm going to the Father? What do you mean by that? And this is, they, don't un, they don't get what he's, where he's going and what's about to happen in just a few hours, right? But Jesus continues explaining to them, and he, and he gives them an example of a woman giving birth and how there are many days and nights and weeks and months of discomfort and pain leading up to a, the birth of a baby and, and the time in some evenings seemed to creep by. But Jesus, with the authority of Creator God, says, the day finally comes when the baby is born. And all of that, in a moment, is forgotten. Um... I say this as a as a father, you know. I you can you can talk to Laura about her perspective on things. She had a tougher road than I did, but I just know from a father, as a father, being in the room four times happens every time. I mean, in that moment, it's like everything starts over. It's like it's it's a it's a it, every it's this is its own new little reality. This child, 
And, and every ounce of attention in that moment is in that new life. And a, and a feeling of joy that is, so far as I've been able to discover, is scarcely paralleled in this world. And it's not only, it's not only instantaneous joy, which it is. Um, it's surreal. And it's, it's, it's a surreal moment. But once you have a child, your life is never the same again. You're, it's just not, and in a good way. In a good way. Your life is never the same again. Um, and, and, and that's Jesus' point. I think that's Jesus' point. I'm convinced this is the purpose in his analogy. It's not just to convey the mere fact that one day their sorrow and their hardship will turn to joy. That's true, but that's vanilla. <laughs> you know? I think he's, he's adding, he, he chose this analogy to add a, 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 a texture to this that's deeper than the surface. It's, it's not just that, that, that one day their sorrow and their hardship will turn to joy, but that it will be in such a way that the, heart, the hardship will be completely forgotten. And then it will be a, a joy that comes with a completely new reality. And it's never going to be the old way again. Other New Testament writers understood this too. Paul especially. He said in Romans 8, 18. Great memory verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. He understands there's, there's a new reality coming. And if, if anybody knew anything about sufferings, it's Paul. And he knew that that new reality coming, it's not even worth comparing to these sufferings. Or 2 Corinthians 4.17, this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I love that verse because it actually says, I'll read it again and listen carefully. This slight momentary affliction, this affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Like it's not just the weight of glory comes after sequentially the sufferings and the affliction. But the affliction is actually the thing that is preparing the weight of glory. Again, like childbirth. So Jesus concludes in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The sorrow is temporary. The hardship is temporary. Real, but it's temporary. The joy is everlasting. No one will ever take the joy away from you. So obviously when Jesus says, in a little while they won't see him, and then in a little while they will, he's talking about two things. He's talking about two things. First, he's talking about his resurrection after the cross. In a little while you won't see me. They're going to put me in a tomb. But in a little while, you will see me on Sunday, right? 
But on the, on the, secondly, there, he's talking about his return after the ascension, his second coming, right? And notice that he describes both periods as a little while. From the eternal perspective of Christ, the distance from his first coming to his second coming is, is, is just as much a little while as the cross on Friday to the resurrection on Sunday. Peter, later in his life, in 2 Peter 3.8, following Moses, who said it first in Psalm 90, reminds us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. That shouldn't discourage us that, to think that the return of Christ could still be so far off, and time's just going to creep. A day is as a thousand years, good grief. But that when he comes, the, what that verse is saying, and what Jesus means by a little while, it means when that day comes, the time now that felt so long in waiting will feel like an easily forgettable moment. So when Jesus talks about the sorrow they will experience when he's gone, he uses pretty strong language, weeping lament that's strong but understand that from that Jesus doesn't at all minimize the depth of the hurt and the hardship here he doesn't sugarcoat it he 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 uses strong language but that only adds to the wonder and the assurance of the joy set before us if he's not wrong about the hurt, he's not wrong about the joy. It's, it's, it is far too easy to, and I know it, I feel it in my own heart. It's far too easy to fall in love with this present world. It's far too easy to seek our joys here, and it's, it's far too easy to convince ourselves that we can find it here. But the closer we walk with Jesus and walk in obedience to Him, one, yes, uh, it's going to be hard. But at the same time, it's harder for the joys to be found here to surpass the satisfaction that can only come with Jesus and what He can bring. The more we realize that, the more we long for His coming, the more we're comforted by it even now. But Jesus doesn't just comfort them with the thought of the future but reminds them, too, of something incredibly important about their present, and that is the fellowship available to us, even when he's gone. The fellowship available to us. We've only gone so far as verse 22, and it doesn't appear just looking at the text that Jesus switches gears any when he comes to verse 23. But at closer inspection, he does, in fact, start talking about something much more a present reality than a future one. How do we see that? Well, look with me at the, at the text. Verse 23 begins with, in that day, in that day, and if you're just motoring through this passage, just not really slowing down any to think of closely about what you're reading, you're just motoring through, you might think and you might assume that when he's when he's talking about that day, he's talking about that day that he comes again. He was just talking about, in a little while, you will see me. And in that day, 
Well, maybe he's talking about in that day that I come again, in that day that you see me again. That's what he's just been talking about. But based on what he continues to say, that's not the case. Because what, is he, what does he continue to talk about? Prayer. Prayer. We know that when Christ comes again and we see him face to face, prayer will cease. We won't need to ask the Father anything in Jesus' name via prayer because we'll be there with him. And so when Jesus says in verse 23, in that day, he's talking about that day that he's gone. In that day that I go to the Father. In that day that I'm no longer with you. In that day. In other words, the whole period of time between his ascension to the Father and his coming again at the second coming. In that day when they are apart from Christ. In that day that are filled with weeping and lament. In that day of hardship and sorrow. In that day. In that day what? In that day you will ask nothing of me. What? Why? You'll ask nothing of me because I won't be here anymore. Okay, but what then? Verse 23. Verse 23. Truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus is saying that even when he is gone the, the, the fellowship can go on unbroken. But he's thrown something at them that at first hearing might have been a little sobering. Ask the Father. Even when I'm gone, ask the Father. I mean, they had been with Jesus three years. With Jesus, uh, they'd been with him, and, and, and they had witnessed Jesus asking the Father for things. Right? To multiply this bread. To raise this kid from the dead. Jesus asked the Father for lots of things. Um, and it was, it's, it was always granted. Now, yeah, Jesus had taught them to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But still, they had witnessed Jesus praying to the Father, knowing that he had come from the Father and was one with the Father, John ten thirty. Jesus assures them in verses 26 and 27, if you look down in that day, in that, those verses, he says, in that day that you're praying to the Father, in that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. He loves you because you have loved me and, and have believed that I came from God. Think about how those words would have landed on them. The Father himself loves you. I don't need to ask on your behalf. The Father himself loves you. You can ask the Father in my name, and he will hear and he will answer. But even then, the promise had to seem a little hard to believe. Ask anything in the name of Christ, and he'll grant it. The operative phrase there is, in the name of Christ. What does that mean? In the name of God all throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and the name of God is always commensurate with His character, what He is like. And the same is true with Christ. To ask the Father 
anything in the name of Christ. It's not just a phrase you tack on as a talisman to get whatever it is you're asking for. When you ask the Father in the name of Christ, is to ask the Father anything that is consistent with the character of Christ and His Word. Are we right about that? Yeah, that's certainly how John himself heard it. John, in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John said, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he, that he hears us in whatever we ask. If he hears us, we have that we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. And don't hear that as a mechanical formula for answered prayer. It's not a mechanical formula. This is an invitation to fellowship with the Lord. As unbroken as, as, unbroken as we desire it. Think of all that, that, that those verses assure us of. We can know that the Father loves us. We can know the will of Christ. We can pray to the Father in His name at any time we desire. We can know that He hears us when we pray, and He answers our cries when we ask according to His will. And His will is all over the place in Scripture. I mean, it, His will is the... Is, one, one aspect of His will is simply for you to cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. I mean, His... His will is to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. His will is give us today our daily bread. His will is as wide as His Word. And his, in His Word, there's a thousand promises to inform our asking. And in the darkest days of our waiting, there's fellowship available to us in prayer with one ready to hear and care for us. Two passages came to my mind when I was thinking about this point of the, of the passage. The first that, that just came to my mind, I'm not saying that it's necessarily a cross-reference to this passage. It's just a verse that the Holy Spirit brought to my mind. Proverbs 18, 24. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And Jesus, Jesus said, I've, he just finished saying basically in the last chapter, I've called you friends. I've called you friends. The Lord himself is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And we can talk to him anytime in prayer. And the second passage that came to my mind, again, just a passage that came to my mind, is, is the Apostle Paul in the last letter of his life. He said in 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, verses 16 and 17, he's in, under house arrest, and he says, he tells Timothy, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. May it not be charged to them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. There is one who sticks closer than a brother. The assurance of access and being heard and, and being answered in prayer that is only a scarce comfort to one whose eyes of faith aren't trained to see anything beyond what reason or resources or rationality can provide. We can pray to the one who can do far above all that we could ask or think, who can work all things together for good.
That's a comfort. That's a comfort that we just forfeit way too much. But there's one more comfort that he gives, and i got to hurry. And that's the victory that upholds us. Jesus finishes his remarks to them, reminding them that um, what he's told them is going to happen to them, he's going to experience first, actually. Everything that he's told them up to now that's going to happen to them, he's about to go through himself. He tells them soberly in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. You disciples, you, you disciples, you're going to be scattered and you will leave me alone. You will leave me. You will desert me. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Do you see how in that one sentence Jesus is saying, I am about to undergo myself what I have just told you you are going to endure. Jesus will soon be abandoned by his disciples when he's arrested, and yet he will be sustained. How? By the fellowship with the Father. And for the joy set before him, he will endure the cross. This is one reason why he can assure his disciples of the comforts that they can have when he's gone, because he's going there first. But when he tells them in verse 30, then he tells them in verse 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus knows before he is ever betrayed, before he's ever arrested, he already knows victory's won. He's so sure of it that just a few verses later, if you're looking in your Bible, it's chapter 17, verse 4, he says in his prayer early on, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This he said before ever going to the cross. Not because it was already done, but it was as good as done. It's, it's, it's like Romans 8, 28, where Jesus said, and those, uh, those whom he justified, he also glorified we're not yet glorified, but the promise is so sure it's as good as already done. The wor- here's, what he's saying in these, here's what he's saying in these final verses, and we'll close. He's telling them, as I understand it, disciples, them and us, disciples, the worst thing, the worst thing that could ever happen to you was about to happen to him instead. No matter what we encounter in this life as a follower of Christ, the worst has already happened. And it has been overcome. These were the last words of Jesus before his prayer. These were the words his disciples would have pondered endlessly. And I think these are the words they are meant for us to do the same. So I'm going to pray and close us, and we're going to have time to move about before the service, but I do pray that you would think long on these words of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for always answering our prayer when we ask in Jesus' name according to his will. And I know it is according to your will that, that, uh, that when we humble ourselves and desire to, to see the truth in the scriptures and understand it and love it and obey it. Those are all requests according to your word. Would you 
would you grant us to hear deeply these encouragements? Love Jesus more and follow hard after him as a result. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.